Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Heavenly Father, help us to not defend ourselves against the grace of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Like three of you, probably no more than three, have read Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But many of you, I dare say most people in this room, have seen the Disney film, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is very dark and really good. Uh, But some of you know the basic plot, right? The main character, Quasimodo, is this deformed, rejected man who hides away in a cathedral, but he eventually meets and befriends this uh, Romanian, a gypsy woman named Esmeralda, and they develop a bond over their common and shared rejection. And eventually, Esmeralda is illegitimately uh, tried and about to be executed, but the execution was interrupted by Quasimodo, who carries Esmeralda into the cathedral and screams the word sanctuary. And when he does that, when he screams the word sanctuary, within the sanctuary, the law can't touch her. And she's entirely protected. Well, in Ephesians 2, um, Paul shouts at us through his pen. Paul shouts the word sanctuary over you, over your life. He gives you a place that no one can touch you. Uh, he gives you a place of unthreatening love. And I want to speak about that sanctuary uh, place today. I think this is one of the most beautiful passages in all the New Testament. You may know the name J.C. Ryle. He was a very famous Anglican bishop who wrote many helpful things. He was actually converted when this very passage was simply read to him during morning prayer. He heard it and took it in. Uh, So I want to explore the sanctuary space that Paul gives us, particularly in verses 8 and 9. Now, Carl Truman will be speaking next Sunday about the beautiful and beautifying ramifications of verses 8 and 9, about the lovely good works we get to do in the world. But today, I'm going to focus on verses 8 and 9, and I'm going to conclude by addressing the almost universal allergy that human beings have for the gospel, that is, our hatred of grace. Uh, The context is important. In chapter 2, Paul uh, begins somewhat harshly, um, and he reminds us of our condition that requires a rather glorious Christ, namely that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are by nature followers of dark power and, uh, to put it squarely, children of wrath. Uh, But then he begins our section by speaking about a great intervention that has taken place. Somebody cared enough to interrupt to interrupt our death spiral, but God, but God, but God loves you out of his great love. And he intervened and he raised you up when you were dead, that God did something gorgeous because he cared about your own life more than you care about your life, truly. And then he reaches this beautiful conclusion, which will be the focus of my sermon today, verses 8 and 9. I, uh, I want you to take it up in your hands, and I want you to read it, and I want you to read it aloud with me, okay? So this is verses 8 and 9 
Let's do it together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Thank you. So what I'd like to do is explore some key words within this passage that we really understand how beautiful this message really is and how it applies to those places of our lives that are actually hurt the most and deeply ashamed and paralyzed. And maybe today we'll have a bit of a revelation and we'll sense in ourselves more agility than we have before. So first, uh, what is grace? What is grace? Uh, This may sound simple to you. It's actually not simple. It's bottomless. But what is grace? Well, uh, it's interesting because the church often got confused about this very issue. They didn't always define terms very well, or not always very biblically. But especially during the medieval church, people tended to think of grace as energy. Grace is energy. It's like gasoline in a jet. It helps the jet get where the jet needs to go. But the jet burns up the energy, the gasoline that's given to it. And so people used to think of like church and worship and the sacraments as like gas stations. Like you're leaky or you burn all the gas out of your system. So you need to be replenished by, by involving yourself in the church. And the church will keep you going until you run out or until you leak. Um, but grace or energy, grace energy, is gained or lost dependent, depending upon you and what you do. That's dangerously inaccurate and wrong. That is not what grace is. It is quite true that grace is energizing, but grace is not energy. Grace itself is not energy. Um, it is much securer than that. Grace is a quality that is in God more than it is in you. It is a disposition of God toward you, coming to you from outside of you, and therefore is not dependent upon you. It is dependent upon the one whose disposition it is. And so grace comes from a secured disposition in God toward the person who needs it. Uh, It is, if you were to define the term, uh, specifically, what is it, even if it sources God, what is it? It is something akin to dismerited favor. Dismerited favor. That is being treated as special when you're really not. Being regarded as beautiful when you don't feel beautiful, being regarded as acceptable when you feel anything but. Uh, Carl Rogers, the uh, famous psychoanalyst, used to say that grace is unconditional positive regard. And that's pretty close to the idea. Unconditional positive regard, favor that comes to you from the outside. Grace is, uh, humanly speaking, when uh, the troubled bishop gives the candlesticks to the criminal Jean Valjean, right? Grace is when Christine Daae kisses the hideous phantom of the opera. Grace is uh, when Sam carries Frodo up Mount Doom. Grace is Scrooge getting the chance to have a whole new life. That's grace. And the currency that creates grace is the blood of Jesus. It is not your effort. So that's, uh, that's grace, and grace is controversial because it's contrary to every other world religion. Every other world religion is based on some sort of quid pro quo system with the heavens. Like, I'm going to do this for you. I'll adjust in these ways for you. Uh, I'll try to incrementally improve myself through all sorts of practices. 
And if I do that consistently enough, I'll be accepted, right? Like, it'll work out for me. Uh, and, but it's not just contrary to what we hear in religion so often. It's contrary to what we hear in our, in our current culture. Uh, you know, you've heard, like, uh, so on, like, the cultural right criticizes what they regard as cancel culture. The, the cultural left criticize, like, is in favor of what they call consequence culture. So if you say something in your past that is in any ways non-PC or incriminating, you get walloped. And some people think you shouldn't, and some people think you should. Uh, let me say this. I don't care what you call it, consequence culture or cancel culture. I'm just glad God doesn't look at me that way or you that way. Because the psalmist reminds us, Lord, if you recalled what was amiss, who could stand? Do you want to be judged as you are for a second? And that's what grace is. And so it will always be a foreign word to us because our world does not operate on the currency of grace. It's just the opposite. And that's why we need the church to proclaim it to us. It's so hard to believe that it's true. And yet this is what Paul is talking about. It is God's dismerited favor that he lavishes on people just out of his love. Well, Paul continues. He says it is by grace you have been saved. Saved. You've seen the bumper stickers or the signs that some farmers put like on the sides of their property, right? It just says, are you saved? Question mark. I, it's okay. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. I don't know what it means, though. Like, from what? <laughs> or for what? I don't know. I mean, it's very nebulous. Um, like, tornadoes? Like, <laughs> groundhog attacks? The ice capades? Like, I don't know. Um, are you safe in these things? So, um, so from what? Well, th- we had this, like, thing occur in our country uh, during the Second Great Awakening that was sort of the, the formation or the deeper formation of the revivalist movement that tended to see salvation as escape from hell. Do you know what I mean? Like there was this altar call and then the preacher would get very, very loud and, um, and like scare you about like, like burning and a, a very warm afterlife. And you'd be like, well, I don't want that. Uh, so like, I have to not do that. So how do I get out? And like the way that you get out is that you say yes to Jesus and you walk the aisle. And if you cry, there's bonus points. And then like, you're good. Then you're good. I'm not mocking the sense of judgment. Like it's in the Bible, but here, but I think it's, I think it's better than that. Ephesians 2, our very chapter, lists many, many crises from which we need to be saved, not just the hot place. It mentions that we are spiritually dead and therefore unresponsive to God, like totally numbed out, Um, that our appetites, that our passions are corrupted and influenced by like satanic drives. It talks about the fact that we die and it talks about the fact that we do face God's judgment, that we are children of wrath. So we have a lot of problems, a lot of problems. Um, but, but the good news of salvation is that we get to be saved from all of it, not just some of it. So uh, A.W. Tozer had this great line. He said, you know, some Christians want to be saved from hell, but they don't want to be saved from sin. You know, he's smart, he's smart. And he's right. Uh, but the, the thing is, God's intention for your sin is both pardon and annihilation. So by grace, you have been saved, and then it says through faith. Now, what is faith? Well, some people think faith is something akin to like intellectual acceptance of certain conceptions, certain ideas that, that happened, or maybe even that you thought were important, like 
Washington crossing the Delaware, or Hitler dying in a bunker, or maybe in Argentina. We're not sure, um, right? But it, that's not what faith is in the Bible. Faith is it has more heart in it. Faith is something akin to trust. It's like existential trust. Not only that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. We think that that happened. But it's more than that. It's that those things happened for me. Those things happened for me. There's a personal edge to it. Um, that's why St. You know, James says that even the de- demons believe in monotheism. Right? Demons are monotheistic, but they're not saved. But demons couldn't ever say the creed. Do you know? Like we're going to say the Nicene Creed. Demons can't say the creed because there's one word that would throw them in. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm entrusting myself. That's what we're saying in the creed: that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit love me. And He's saying here that we are saved through that trust. Notice we're not saved by it. He says we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our faith because our faith is flaky. Faith is not strong, you know. Like faith in and of itself is not complete. Faith always attaches to something bigger than itself. Nobody in this room would say, unless you're a little nuts, that you have faith in faith. Like, what does that even mean? Like, no, what you would say to your wife is like, I believe in you. Like, I have faith in you. What you would say to your friends is that, no, like, I believe in you. I believe we're going to get through this. Uh, People in AA, when they sit down in a 12-step group, they say, oh, I have faith in the group. But you have faith in something else. Faith is is something that attaches to a bigger object, right? And so it isn't your faith that saves you. It's God's grace that saves you. But faith is the thing that attaches to that grace or that rests upon that grace, So Luther likens it to ice on a pond in the winter. And he says, so whether you boldly jump on the ice or you're afraid and you tiptoe on the ice, it doesn't really matter like how tough your faith is or how pathetic it is. It's much more about the strength of the ice than the stride you have upon it. And so whether you think your faith is pathetic this morning or if you think you're awesome sauce this morning, and you're probably neither, truth be told, you're probably somewhere in the middle, um, it doesn't really matter. It's the thickness of the ice beneath your feet. And Jesus Christ is thick ice, and he won't give way. He's not going to crack. So that's like faith. It's trust. Um, And then St. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is the gift of God. So there's this debate. I'm not interested in it. I don't have time to get into it. And if you want an article on it, there's a good one on uh, the Gospel Coalition website, but check that out some other time, not during the sermon. The big debate is, what does the it refer to? It is the gift of God. Is it like the grace is the gift of God, but faith is just our little mustering up? Or is it grace is the gift of God and faith? Is it faith is the gift of God? Let me say this to you. The grammar is ambiguous. There it is. The grammar is ambiguous. Um, what most commentators think is that Paul is referencing the entirety of salvation. That is, the grace and the faith and everything that results from it is the gift of God. Salvation in all its parts is not a trophy or a reward for our excellence. It is not a wage. It is a gift. All of it is a gift. That's why it says in the scripture that God raises the dead. He does it all, essentially. I remember working so hard when I was in the restaurant business. I was the world's worst waiter. 
I was so bad at it. I got everybody's orders wrong. And you know me, I'm kind of a nervous wreck most of the time. So like being a waiter was not an awesome fit for me. I learned that the hard way. So I became a priest, which is so stress-free. Um, but right? my knows. But I was I worked so hard because I thought maybe I could be employee of the month because I was told you get a prize. I did. I worked really hard and I got it. See, it, you know, hard work, it pays off. And so they, Monday night, they presented me with an envelope. They're like, congratulations, you're going to get your name attached to a little plaque and, and here's something just for you. And you know what it was? It was written out to me. It was a gift certificate for $25 to that restaurant. But here's what kind of stinks. The food there was free for employees anyway. <laughs> It didn't even matter. I worked all this way for, you know, I worked so hard for nothing. But, but what happens in salvation is that God just gives everything. God gives everything. And it's a gift. It's not a trophy. It's a gift. It's God who raises the dead. It's God who saves. It's God who renews. It's through his bleeding. There's this great song, by the way, in the Disney film about uh, the hunchback. It's really good, actually. You should watch it. Esmeralda is in the church. She's in the cathedral. And she's this rejected gypsy woman. And she starts singing a prayer to Jesus in a Disney movie. I'm going to read you some of the lyrics. She says, I don't know if you can hear me or if you're even there. And I don't know if you would listen to a gypsy's prayer. Yes, I know I'm an outcast and I shouldn't speak to you. But still I see your face and wonder, were you once an outcast too? It's just gorgeous. The idea that she was communicating was that I have nothing, but maybe because you once had nothing, you would care about people like me. Everything could be a gift to me. So that's what St. Paul is saying. It's a gift. And then he says in verse nine, it's not a result of works so that no one may boast what works. So when I was 19, I went to Germany and uh, we toured various places uh, in Germany, Austria, and Italy. But for, in one of our trips, we toured the Dachau concentration camp, which uh, you know was endlessly harrowing and depressing and enlightening. But you, some of you know this, this dark iconography, but on the iron gate that led into the camp, there were iron letters that said, Arbeit macht frei. Work makes you free. And it was a teasing sentiment to put on a gate like that a very abusive thing to tell people. Now, I want you to notice here that um, the, the works that Paul mentions are unqualified. Sometimes Paul says you're not saved by works of the law, but by grace. But he qualifies it, works of the law. And some people have read out of that, oh, see, Paul is, Paul, um, is simply saying that you're not saved by ceremonial laws. So you're not saved by circumcision or keeping the Jewish feasts and festivals and calendar and that sort of thing. But you're still saved by the moral law, and you have to be obedient to the moral law in order for God to save you. Um, in a word, no. Um, and here we have an unqualified works Paul is saying you are not saved by any works, any works that you ever do. You are not saved by anything that you will ever do. You're not saved by trying. You're not saved by obeying. You are not saved by following Jesus. You are not saved by listening to your parents, by homeschooling your kids. 
You are not saved by sending your kids to public school in order not to shelter them. You are not saved by sticking to a monthly budget and having a very neat Excel spreadsheet. You're not saved by getting into grad school at Boston College. You're not saved by canceling your carbs. And you're not saved by living with this constant internal pressure. I met many Christians who ask things like, am I really saved? Am I really okay? Am I really following Jesus? Am I really doing this right? Am I really being obedient? Let me answer all those questions for you. No, you're not. You're not. That's the whole point. If you had been that way, we wouldn't have needed a Jesus to begin with because he's principally your bloodletting savior who came for people who weren't doing it right. It is not through your works that you are saved. You know, the communists used to have a slogan, right? Workers of the world unite. St. Paul would have one. Workers of the world disband because you can't earn love. Some of us have been trying our whole lives to earn love, legitimacy, security. And so we just burn ourselves out with this maniacal, hysterical intent to be the best we can be all the time. Of course, you and I both know there's a place for labor in life, even within the Christian life. But that work, that labor is always a result of grace. It's never a payment for grace. Because if it were a payment for grace, then grace isn't grace. So this is what Paul is saying. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one can boast, no one gets to brag. His point is something akin to, using my language, that Jesus is Quasimodo, right? Jesus is Quasimodo, the deformed, rejected man from whom we hide our faces. He is the one who carries us into the cathedral and yells sanctuary over our life, giving us a new, gracious home that saves and heals The grace of Jesus, by the way, is not like one mere element of Christianity, like one ingredient in the recipe that has lots of other ingredients. It is the heart of the body. It is the sun in the solar system. And if we miss this, we miss everything that makes Christianity Christian. This is no light matter. And yet I find in myself and in people that I deal with day to day that we have an allergy to this very central concept The thing that should make us happiest often makes us the most angry. Uh, We often want to run from the sanctuary. I hear Christians try to minimize grace. They treat the grace of Jesus as only having a role in evangelism or something. It's like the beginning of the Christian life, or more specifically, it's for the non-Christian in order to make them a Christian. And then the gospel, or God's grace in Christ, drops away and is replaced by all sorts of tasks and ladders to climb and missions to accomplish But removing grace from practical day-to-day Christianity makes out of our faith an impossible law that will defeat you and will cause you to be depressed if you are honest with yourself. It just becomes sort of a Judaism 2.0. I met a married couple once whose husband told his wife on the day of their union, I love you and I will love you always, and if that ever changes, I'll let you know, and never said I love you again. That is very often our experience of grace in the Christian life. We heard it at the beginning before it looked sort of Buddhist later. But friends, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that grace is just as true for you now as it ever was. Also, I find that some Christians, even ministers, weaponize scripture itself to attack the theme of grace. So whenever scripture proclaims grace to people, I often hear something, something like this. 
Now, we just heard that, friends, but don't you get the wrong idea. You still need to show God how grateful you are that he was gracious to you in the first place and prove that his grace meant something to you, so get to work. No cheap grace here. You need to pay for it. That is brutal and abusive, and it will never happen from this pulpit. If it ever does, I will make sure it never happens again. So a broader question, why? Why does grace make us nervous or even angry? Why do we so easily despise it to reject the sanctuary? I think there are a few reasons. First, it's unfamiliar. Almost nothing in life is gracious. You know, many of our marriages, our relationships in our extended family, our departments, our, uh, our um the clubs that we belong to, everything is sort of a chess match. It's a quid pro quo thing. If I do this, you'll respond in this way. It's all conditionalism. It's all guided by, you know, bylaws. Um, and so it's, it's very unfamiliar to us. And so therefore, it's hard to really accept. Also, grace is insulting. It diminishes our self-created legitimacy. Many of us spend our whole lives trying to prove something to our dads or to our mothers or to our bosses, or to our professors. And Grace says that doesn't matter because your legitimacy is granted, not earned. Also, Grace is unfair. We don't like that wretches get off scot-free. Very often our disposition is similar to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son who fumes at the father because he was too kind, too loving, too merciful, didn't take into consideration how his grace might lead to licentiousness in his younger son's life. And so there's defensiveness about that. Also, grace makes us fearful. If grace is true, what is to constrain people to follow the rules? After all, isn't following the rules important? Well, the point is grace makes the old Adam within us who is addicted to earning and addicted to proving tremble, react, rage, and fight. And friends, to be honest, like if I was just using reason and not faith, there are a million very understandable reasons to spurn the gift, to spurn the gift of declared sanctuary. But what if, like just today, maybe just this hour, we could accept it without fighting it just for once in our lives? Maybe we could just trust that God really does love you. And he does so unrelentingly that we could trust grace instead of our incessant need to overcome, to prove, to legitimize, to make our tired little lives look less tired because we all need it to be true. And that is the rub. We need it to be true. This is not an option. This is not a slight benefit. We need this to be true. So there's this great um, scene in The Crown. Some of you have seen it because you're Anglophiles. Uh, this Netflix original series about the English monarchy. There's a lovely scene in which Prince Philip's uncle, Lord Mountbatten, this military man, very strong, dominant man, and uh, Prince Philip's mother. She was also a nun, which is kind of awesome. She was laying in her bed, and she was smoking this cigarette, speaking to her brother, Lord Mountbatten. And they were opining the state of England, the state of the country. And a very defeated Mountbatten said, I hate to see what's happening to this country as it's run by these idiots, by these dogs. And this nun, his sister just listens sweetly, listens. And then eventually, Riley smiling, she looks at him and says, oh, who cares, honestly? We're old. We're on the way out. And don't forget, we royals, we are mongrels too. 
we are mongrels too. She was speaking a spiritual truth that regardless of rank, we are needy to the core. There is a fault in our stars. And so we need grace to be entirely true. Why? Because we're mongrels too. We are Esmeralda. We are damaged, stuck, hiding, unimproved in so many ways. And to quote Princess Alice, who cares? Who cares? Because we're no longer defined by any of those things. No achievements, no labor. Because we have a sanctuary and we have a gracious Messiah who built it for us and who declares that word over us. And so we eat and drink and breathe and sleep and shop and fail and recover and grow and learn and and are shaped and learn to yield and die and eventually rise again within the sanctuary that is made by gracious eternal hands and everlasting arms. So how about today, or maybe just for this hour, we trust that the gospel actually counts for us. Amen. Free at last, they took your life, they could not.